0: Lord, we thank you so much for this time of year where we tend to contemplate uh, the incarnation maybe a little more than other times, and yet we are impacted by your sending of your Son every day of our lives. We thank you, Lord, for orchestrating our salvation and the mysteries that we're going to speak of this morning, help us to we pray that your spirit would open up your word, help us to believe, to understand, but then to stop where your word stops. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the beauty that we see in creation <clears throat> the beauty that we see all around us even this morning. And yet uh, you have honored humanity with nobility by sending your son to take on human flesh. So, though we are sinners and our race is corrupt, um, when we look at the God-man, we are inspired and humbled. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would move amongst us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, um, we're going to pick it up where we did last week. Couple of weeks we we're talking about sin. Now we're going to be looking at what exactly has God done to save sinners, and uh, over the next few weeks we're going to be basking in the glory of the solution to the problem of sin. And that solution is in the God-Man Jesus Christ, the one who came into this world. When we when we study the doctrine of Christ, we tend to divide up that study into two parts, the person and the work of Christ. I'm going to be talking about the person of Christ this morning, uh, both his deity and his humanity. And the next week, the next two weeks, we're going to get into the work of Christ. Um, and as believers, we know that we know Jesus personally. So the study of Christ is deeply practical and deeply personal. Um, To summarize what we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to propose that the scripture teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Um, And so we're going to take a look at, first of all, the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is fully God. And we're going to divide up this topic. We're going to you know, first kind of hit the idea that we see this even in the Old Testament. We see it in some of the terms that Jesus is given. You guys might remember at the beginning of this course, we were looking at Luke 24 with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in that part of the narrative, Jesus says to these disciples that everything that's written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms is about me. It points to me. And so, so we would think then if we go back to our old Testament, that we would see some hints of the deity of Christ. And in fact, we do one of the places that we see it is in the title, son of man. Uh, If you were to, we did some reading in Daniel this last summer and, um, In Daniel 7, there's this description of the ancient of days. But then in verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. To, uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, um, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is described as someone that's going to have dominion, honor, glory, and an eternal kingdom. And then when you compare that to the way Jesus describes himself in the New Testament, over in Matthew 25, that sheep and goats passage Jesus says in verse thirty one, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he shall sit on his glorious throne and before him all the nations shall be gathered. Then he separates them as the sheep and the goat goats." So Jesus is clearly he designates himself as the son of man and he speaks of it as being uh, the throne of his glory. Uh, So this is one of the indications in the Old Testament that Jesus takes on a title um, that seems to be uh, reserved for God because of the glory and the honor uh, and the reigning power that seems to be reserved for that title. You also have a title like the Son of David where... Um we have the historical son of David, but then the Old Testament keeps pointing forward to this future son of David. We see it in 2 Samuel 7, for instance, uh, 713. Uh, he shall build a house for my name, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then that that title, Son of David, just gets um reverberated throughout the Old Testament. Psalm forty-five Verse six and seven says your throne. O God is forever. And then Hebrews one picks that up and really refers that to Jesus Christ. You also see that famous passage, Isaiah nine, where it says for unto us, a child is born unto us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. So there's a tie in between the son of David and this idea of uh, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, not father in the sense of God, the father, father would actually be a term that could be would be frequently used of kings, even Naaman. I don't know if you guys remember Naaman. He's not a king, but he's a high-ranking official. His servants call him Father over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So Father doesn't always mean God the Father. And so those are just a, a few examples. There's, there's others that we could look at, but I want to spend more time on, on how the New Testament picks up the idea of Christ's deity. And uh, we'll run through these pretty quickly, but... Jesus Christ is called God and Lord. Now, by the way, when you see the, the term in the New Testament, God or the Greek Theos, Theos, sometimes it refers to God the Father, but other times Theos is, rever- is referring to the divine nature generally. And so God is not always a reference to the Son in particular, but the Son is always God is the way we would say it. So sometimes theos is is very, especially when the Trinity is listed together, sometimes you'll see God, the Son, and then the Spirit. Um, But other times when Jesus is sectioned off, uh, he's referred to as theos or God or Lord. So just a couple of the the verses, and you could spend more time on these on your own. Obviously, John 1, 1 in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You also have... um, uh, verses like Romans nine five uh, that calls that says Christ who is God over all blessed forever or Titus two thirteen our great God and Savior Jesus Christ so those are three places where theos is used specifically of God <clears throat> but then you also have this concept of Lord the Greek kurios that happens all over the New Testament that's um, that Christ takes on that title as kurios. Now, we want to acknowledge the fact that sometimes Lord slash kurios just means master, right? You could refer to a king or a master as kurios. But there's many places where kurios is the Greek translation of an Old Testament um, reference to Yahweh or the Lord, Adonai. And so when we see those types of translations, we know that we're talking about God. One example of that would be Philippians two eleven, where Paul says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is what, Lord. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Kyrios or Lord, and that's a that's a he. Paul is quoting directly Isaiah forty five verse twenty three, where Isaiah says every knee will bow before me and every tongue will swear allegiance. And that is clearly in context referring to Yahweh. Um, and so that happens many different places. One of the, my favorite places to go, if I have a Jehovah Witness that stops by the house or if I'm talking to them on the street, I'll take them to uh, Joel chapter 2 and, and on the the passage of Scripture where it says, whoever shall call up in the name of Jehovah shall be saved. And then I'll turn over to Romans chapter 10, where Paul's quoting that. And it's in context. It's clearly about Christ. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'll ask them, who's this referring to? And they really don't know what to do with that. In fact, their, their religious organization has changed their interpretation of Romans 10. They, they flip-flop on it about every other year because they don't know what to do with that passage. Um, and so you see that kind of stuff all over the place. Um, There's also, again, we're going to run through these pretty quickly because I want to get to the humanity of Christ that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. You guys may be familiar with in John chapter eight, where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. That's not just a claim of preexistence. It's also a claim to the, the name of God. I am, as it says in Exodus, I am who I am. And the religious leaders knew that. That's why they wanted to stone him. And then later on in chapter 10, he says, I and the father are one. That's not saying, hey, we're buddies. It's saying they're of the same essence. And that's why, again, that they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. Also, thirdly, Jesus Christ is presented as the object of believers, faith and trust. Just a couple passages that would indicate this. John 14, 1, where Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Just think about what Jesus is saying there. If I stood up here today and I said, believe in God, believe also on Mike. You guys would be like, this dude's nuts. But for Jesus to say it, he can say that because he is of the same essence as the father. In John 17, 3, in the high priestly prayer, uh, we see that eternal life is to know Jesus Christ. In fact, let me go ahead and turn over there. You can too, if you wish. Um, right there in verse three, and this is eternal life that they may know you father and the, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent Jesus Christ to know Jesus Christ is to have eternal life. I would never say to know God and Mike Berry is eternal life. That would be blasphemy, but Jesus can say it because he is of the same essence as the father. Also fourth Jesus Christ is presented as the object of the believer's worship. This is one of my favorite studies in the book of Matthew. We have to remember the context here. Remember, part of the big to do in the Old Testament is to get Jews to the place where they'll worship only one God, right? The Shema, the great Shema is, Hero, Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And they spend most of their history in the Old Testament going to worship multiple gods. Finally, God has to take them off into captivity into Babylon. They get that worked out of their system. And so it's inconceivable that a bunch of Jews would suddenly start worshiping Jesus if they just believed that he was a second God, right? But they do begin to worship Jesus. And and when you look at uh, the book of Matthew, <clears throat> throughout the book of Matthew, you have this idea of worship. The Greek term is proskuneo. Now, proskuneo could mean just to bow before a king, uh, but it also is what we would do before God. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil tempts him to bow down and proskuneo him, to worship him, what does Jesus say? You shall not worship anyone else. You shall proskuneo anybody else except for God, right? But then he receives proskuneo in 1433 and other places, particularly you have um, Thomas is calling him my Lord and my God, and they're worshiping him. And Jesus doesn't do what the apostles do. When the apostles get bowed down to in the book of Acts, they say, don't do that. When an angel gets worshiped in the book of Revelation, they say, don't do that. When Jesus gets proskuneoed, he receives it. And so he receives worship because he is God. We also have to remember Isaiah 48, 11, God says, my glory, I will not give to another. And yet he wants glory to go to his son, Jesus Christ. So That would indicate a unity of the Godhead. Fifthly, again, about the deity of Christ, we'd say Jesus Christ is described as both being God and performing the very works of. Of God, And this gets to that famous triad of passages. John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. We'll just focus on Colossians 1 where it says 115. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. So he created all things. Genesis 1 tells us God created all things. Colossians says Christ created all things. And if you look at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. If Jesus isn't God, that's blasphemy to suggest that he created everything for him, for his own glory. Um, and then sixthly, we would say the deity of Christ <clears throat> is established. Jesus is assumed to have been preexistent as the eternal son of God prior to his incarnation. That's interesting. In um, places like Second Timothy one nine and ten, it says God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Um, Paul and the other apostles they don't they're not arguing for his preexistence; they're arguing from his preexistence. There's a difference. Um, In these passages, Paul isn't trying to demonstrate the preexistence of Christ. Paul Paul is arguing for something else on the basis of a commonly held belief in Christ as the eternal son of God. In other words, he is not arguing for the preexistence of Christ. He is arguing from it. That's how bedrock a truth this is. It was just assumed amongst believers that Christ was preexistent. And so much assumed that Paul can make an argument from that fact. Uh, One of the ways that um, some author, one author particularly, uh, this is from uh, Robert Bauman, uh, putting Jesus in his place, has this little uh, memory device called hands. You can think of worship. And uh, if you were to assemble all the various passages of Scripture that demonstrate the deity of Christ, we could say that Jesus Christ shares honor due to God. That would be the H, so he receives worship. Attributes of God. For instance, he's holy, he's righteous, he's all-powerful. Jesus uh, shares the names of God. He's called Lord, he's called God, he's called Alpha and Omega. Jesus Christ um, shares in the deeds that God does. Jesus forgives sin. I don't forgive sin, but Jesus does. He raises the dead, he creates the world. And Jesus shares the seat of God's throne. That's why he's called Son of David, Son of Man, and then Son of God. Um, so that would be a good memory device um, that you could use to to help remember the deity of Christ. Um, in church history, 451, we have the, the statement of Chalcedon, <clears throat> which I'll, I'll leave more for your reading. Um, just a couple of the statements. Uh, Perfect in Godhead, truly God and truly man. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. I'm not going to spend really any time on this. You can read it on your own other than to say all the Chalcedonian statement is trying to do is summarize what the Bible says. You know, when, when we read the scripture, it's interesting. The Bible doesn't read like some Platonic philosophy. It's not reading like Taoist statements. It's like all of theology is taught within a context. There's some sort of context of real life situation that's going on. And then the apostles are just applying doctrine to context. And that's how we learn our theology. And And then the, the church is expected to look at these real-life case situations and then to make deductions by which we form our creeds. Um, theoretically, God could have just put a bunch of creeds in the Bible, but instead he puts real-life situations and helps us see how our theology impacts real life. Um By the way, um, the article that I sent you guys out by Justin Taylor, he cites um, a particular author, uh, Pelican, who says that, that the doctrine of the deity of Christ, we see it in the oldest surviving sermon of the Christian faith, the oldest surviving account of the death of a Christian martyr, the oldest surviving pagan report, the oldest surviving liturgical prayer, all of them refer to Christ as God. So that's not even in Scripture. Just go to the most ancient documents other than the Bible, and they all refer to Jesus as as God. So contrary to Dan Brown, who is not a historian, by the way, he's just a fictional author, um, the deity of Christ, Christ was not made up uh, by Constantine uh, in 300, whatever it is, 306, right? In um, the Council of Nicaea. It was a well-established belief and doctrine um, early, early in the church. As far as the importance of Christ's deity and the beauty, um, the deity of Christ matters uh, for revelation's sake because God sent Him, son, his son to reveal himself. Jesus says the Father and I are one. And so we get remember what it was uh i forget who it was was it thomas i forget which apostle says show us the father and uh and then we'll you know then we'll believe he goes if you've seen me you've seen the father and so by seeing christ by beholding christ we're a beholding god i i think it's luther that says i'll have nothing to do with an absolute god he says the the God that we worship and relate to is a God that has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Um, And Spurgeon makes a a similar type statement in the article that you guys, um, that I sent you guys, his sermon on the humanity of Christ. Spurgeon says, imagine that we could relate that somehow we were able to relate to God outside of Christ. He goes, I know that's paradoxical, but he just says that that would be a fearsome thing. But truth be told, there is no God outside of Christ. This is a triune God. And so if you know Christ, you know God. Uh, Christ is the one that gets us to the Father. And, um, and so there is no Christless God. God is triune. And um, it's, so we can't even possibly imagine having a revelation of God outside of Christ. Um, It matters, you know, when it comes to our salvation because God is the one that orchestrates salvation. You know, virtually every other religion has some way that human beings try to attempt to save themselves or to improve themselves. Higher consciousness, positive thinking, religiosity, the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path of Buddhism. But God comes along in Jesus Christ and basically says, You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, but I'm going to save you through my son, Jesus Christ. And then it's essential for the Christian life that for us to to really experience true life is through the second Adam. Under the first Adam, we fell, but under the second Adam, we're exalted. And then Christ has sent the Holy Spirit and he fellowships with us right now through the Holy Spirit. And so, so we're, we have constant access to Christ through the the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so we, we drink of this, as Calvin says, we, we drink of this fountain of Christ. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God has shown a light in our hearts, and that light is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. <clears throat> So there's a lot more that you guys we could talk about when it comes to the deity of Christ. Um, I'd encourage you guys to take a look at the article. No, I'm not advancing here we go. There we go. Um, the article that I sent you guys on Justin Taylor, that is a really excellent summary that gives you a lot of links to other resources on the deity of Christ. Um, I was very impressed with that short little article. And so you can check that out on your own. I want to spend the rest of our time on the humanity of Christ. John 1.14 says this. The word became flesh. We know at the front part of the chapter, it says in the beginning was the word, right? The word was with God. The word was God. That's just an amazing statement. When you think about what's being said there, there's distinction and identification in one verse. But then in verse 14, the word became flesh. And tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, as much as we argue, and as the Scripture does, that Jesus Christ is fully God, we also have to affirm that He is completely one hundred percent man. This is actually where I tend to start when I'm talking with Jehovah Witnesses or people that dispute the Trinity or don't understand the Trinity. More and more, I tend to start with the humanity of Christ because I find that like Jehovah Witness friends, they tend to assume they're kind of geared up for the argument about the deity of Christ and they think that that's where we're going to go right away. And so what do they do? They just, all they do is they just bring up all of these passages that affirm the humanity of Christ. And so I start there, and I admit and acknowledge right out the gate that Jesus is completely human, right? And to understand this idea, again, Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man in one person and will be so forever. We want to make sure as we study the scriptures that we don't get the mistaken notion that God, that Jesus being God and man is kind of like throwing two ingredients into a blender and we blend it all up. That would give us the wrong concept of God. It's not like we've got a glass of water. We pour out the water and fill it up with milk. So we get rid of one nature and input another nature. That's a wrong view of the humanity and deity of Christ. Neither is it like just putting oil and water into a glass where they're kind of in there, but kind of staying separate. All of those are wrong pictures of the deity and humanity of Christ. There's really no analogy that fully demonstrates the deity and humanity of Christ. We just have to look at the scriptures and look at what the Bible tells us and then affirm what the Bible says about his full humanity and full deity. Um, And so we're going to we're going to spend some time looking at the humanity of Christ here under basic, three basic headings. We're going to talk about the virginity, the virgin birth of Christ. Then we're going to talk about his weaknesses or limitations as a man. And then we'll talk about his sinlessness. OK, those would be three ways that we can think about the full humanity of Christ. So <clears throat> let's first of all talk about uh, the virgin birth. We see this established in Isaiah 714. As a prophecy, behold, the virgin shall conceive, be and bear a son. This gets picked up and quoted by Matthew. And then Matthew tells us that um, in Matthew 118, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's very clear. This is before there was any kind of sexual union. She's found with child. And then Luke picks up the same idea. We have the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born and he will be called Holy, the Son of God. So there seems to be a tie-in between the fact that the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary and this child particularly will be called Holy. Remember when we were talking about the doctrine of sin the last couple of weeks, Human beings are born corrupt, right? They are, David says, um, in sin, my mother conceived me, but this child will be born holy. And so there seems to be a tie in to the fact that one, one of the implications here is the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. It seems to be that one of the, the pointers to the virgin birth <clears throat> is the fact that this miraculous birth means that Jesus was born in a way that was was not completely like all of us. At the same time, he was really a man. So he had a human mother, but, you know, it's a virgin birth. So that there seems to be kind of a, a sidestepping, as it were, of the inherited corruption and inherited nature of Adam seems to be one of the implications. So we have kind of two implications that the churches traditionally put forward. The virgin birth made possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. And then the first one we just mentioned, uh, the possibility of united full deity in humanity. These are somewhat speculative ideas, but we do see the the idea gets picked up throughout Scripture that Christ's uh, virgin birth is established both in, in the Gospels. But then also you have places like Galatians, right? Where it says, when the fullness of time came, Jesus Christ, how does he put it exactly? Born of a woman under the law. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, his son, born of a woman born under the law. So there's this continual connection between the fact that Christ is born of God, of a woman, uh, Joseph doesn't come in to the the factor uh, to, to factor in on the rest of, of the New Testament. Now, some people have raised the question about um, the translation of Isaiah 7. Has anybody ever heard that? Is Isaiah 7 really, should that be translated as virgin as opposed to just woman, Alma? I sent you guys a link. Um, it's actually on our Facebook page. If you guys go to the Cornerstone Facebook page, there's a couple links there about the virgin birth of Christ that you can look at. Let me just give you one argument. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of our Old Testaments, which are written in what language? What is the original language of Isaiah? Hebrew. Septuagint's 200 years before Christ. That's Greek. They translate the Hebrew alma with the Greek word for virgin, not woman. And so the Jews, 200 years before Christ, saw this word as meaning virgin. Even though in the context of Isaiah 7, it's a sign to Ahaz, King Ahaz, right? And so this is part of the nature of prophecy, is prophecy sometimes has a near referent and a far referent. And so in Isaiah 7, there's clearly a sign to Ahaz, but there's a further, what some people call kind of a double fulfillment, a further fulfillment in Christ, um, so the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, they pick up that further fulfillment um, which the Septuagint 200 years before Christ seemed uh even though they weren't thinking this was going to be Jesus Christ, they did see a virgin in the future. Uh, a virgin birth. And so that's kind of that in a nutshell. So so that's the so we have a real human birth. And so we won't get into the other implications of this. Real human birth also implies real human um, gestation period and all the things that you would think of with delivery and all that kind of stuff. It's not like Mary was there and all of a sudden there was some kind of Star Wars thing and boom, the baby's outside of her womb. She had to deliver, cut the umbilical cord, the whole nine yards. Then there's um, kind of a second idea, and that is... Jesus endured human weakness and limitations. And this is just all over the Bible. And we're, we're going to run through this rather quickly. But um, Jesus had a human body. Believe it or not, in church history, there are those that denied the reality of his human body because they associate the physical with evil. And so they would argue that his body was just imaginary or whatnot. But the Bible goes to great detail to demonstrate that Christ had a real human body. He was born. He grew in stature. Uh, Luke 2.40 tells us he became tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. After the temptation, he was hungry and needed to be ministered to. He was physically weak. Remember when he's carrying his own cross, he couldn't get it all the way there. And so they had to put it on the shoulders of uh, Simon of Cyrene. That wasn't because he was just play acting. That's another false doctrine in in the early church is some would just say he was just acting. No, he was weak. He could not physically as a man carry the cross all the way there. And so they had to get somebody else to carry it for him uh, because of the weakness of his body. And then even after the resurrection, he's eating fish, right? He's doing all these things. Put your hands here to demonstrate that he has real human body even after the resurrection uh, he has a real human mind the bible indicates that he increased in wisdom this is a befuddling to think about that jesus as god as man is he would have learned his aleph bet gimel dalet right his abc's of hebrew um so he learned his abc's so to speak um he would have um he he uh, Luke 2:52 252 says that he did grow in his in in wisdom. Hebrews 5:8 says he learned obedience. This doesn't mean that he was a you know he sinned and then he got better. It's more like his moral capacity and abilities increased. Um, his parents were able to give him more and more responsibilities as he grew. Um we also see that he had a human mind just by virtue of the fact that in his humanity, there was things that he was ignorant about. That explains Mark thirteen thirty two, where Jesus says, but of, the, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels, nor the son, but only the father knows. That's one of the passages that people love to go to to try to say that Jesus isn't God. Uh, the problem is, is it doesn't demonstrate that. All it does is it demonstrates he's man. That in his humanity, there are certain things he did not know. And while this is mysterious to us, we have to, like, take the full case study of the New Testament. Not just a few of the cases, right? But the full case study to demonstrate both aspects of what we call the hypostatic union. Uh, since I threw out that term too soon, hypostatic union, what does hypostasis mean? That's basically the, the Greek word for um, substance, that Jesus's humanity and deity weren't just pretend they weren't like platonic they were real there's a hypostatic a real union between his humanity and his deity he's really a man he's not just part man he's really god and there's a union between these two natures in one real person right you have one person he's really a person it's not pretend he's really a man he's really god And that's a mystery, but we, um, you know, historically, we've called that the hypostatic union. Um, Let's talk about the fact that he has a a human soul uh, and emotions. Uh, We see that before he went to the cross, uh, it speaks of him being troubled. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, he says in Matthew 26. Was Jesus just pretending? Ah, guys, I'm just kidding. I know I'm going to die and raise from the dead, so I'm just kind of going through the act, the play act of having emotions. No, in his humanity, he's like troubled and sorrowed to death. When he came upon Lazarus, he wept, right? Um, with With those who are weeping, um, and so so we have a genuine emotion. He he was, and he was genuinely tempted. Um, so we we may get into this a little bit later, as a man he he endured temptation and he obeyed. We would say not he wasn't tempted as God because God cannot be tempted and that's one of the reasons why we know there is a distinction between the natures because God cannot be tempted, but a man can, and so that's part of the mystery of the hypostatic union um so real emotions he can be grieved he 's sorrowful, he was happy, he rejoiced, he says, I forget where that is where he says Father, I rejoice that you have not, you've hidden these things from the wise, but you've revealed them to babes. And he was full of the spirit. Let's talk about, um, he endured human weakness and uh, limitations. Are you guys on the same place? Oh no, let's talk about the fact that he was understood to be a human being. So yeah, so in Matthew 13, You have this scene where it says, uh, verse 53 and following, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. As, as his own hometown was looking at him, there was nothing mysterious. He didn't have a halo on his head like you have in a lot of the medieval pictures. He wasn't glowing, right? He didn't look like Neo in, um, what's that movie? Uh, Matrix. Matrix, after he kind of rose from the dead. You know, he just, just a man, right? And so much a man that people are actually offended by the wisdom, almost like Jesus, you seem kind of arrogant. You're just the carpenter's son, and you're you're speaking like you're God or something. You're just the carpenter's son. We know you. Um. So, but nevertheless, a third thing that we would say about the humanity of Christ is that he was sinless. So he's born of a virgin. He had a real human body with all the human limitations, but yet. We'd say the one difference is is he's sinless second corinthians five twenty one for our sake he made him who knew made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God and um you see that also in Hebrews four that he was tempted in every respect yet without sin, so where does that all lead us um is I think one of the things that we can save from both old and new Testament is that we can worship Jesus as the God, man. We worship him as God, but we also worship him as man. We worship him as the God, man. Um, there's a creed that was developed. We call it the Athanasian creed, even though it was developed kind of quite a bit after Athanasius, it was more named after Athanasius, who dealt with the Arian heresy in his time period. But the Athanasian Creed goes something, a part of it goes like this. Furthermore, it was necessary to everlasting salvation that he also uh, believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, pre-existing, a man of substance of His Mother, born in the world. So He was born. He He existed before, but He was born in the world. Perfect God and perfect Man of reasonable soul and human flesh, subsisting. So He's God. But he still has the mind of a man and the body of a man equal to the father as touching his Godhead inferior to the father as touching his manhood. That's a very amazing statement because that gets really, no pun intended, fleshed out throughout the New Testament. He's equal to God, the father, when it comes to his deity, but inferior to God, the father, as touching his manhood or humanity. That's why there's places in the book of John, for instance, where Jesus says the father is greater than I. Right. And our Jehovah's Witness friends love to go there and say, how can the father be greater if he's God? Because in his humanity, the father is greater than him and the father sends the son who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. That's the one person hypostatic union. You have two natures in one person. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh. Right? It's not like he was God and then got transmorphed into a man. It's like what he he was man, and it's it's addition, not subtraction. We say it again: it's addition, not subtraction. He adds humanity to his deity. It's what addition, not subtraction. That's a huge idea. He didn't stop being God. He didn't say, I'm going to stop being God and now become man. He remains God. He becomes man, but he doesn't exercise the full prerogatives of his deity while he's on the earth. Right. It's addition, not what? Not subtraction. Um, And it's not confusion of the substance and so on and so forth. So let me just kind of cut to the chase. <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you guys an article here a, a little more on just kind of why was this full humanity necessary? Um, if it wasn't for anything else other than the fact that the Bible just reveals it, that should be enough. But really what the Bible indicates is that God the Father sent God the Son and to reveal himself And now the second Adam comes to be our representative head, having gone through everything that we've gone through except for sin. You know, Adam goes to the garden, gets tempted, falls. Jesus comes to the earth, is tempted through his whole life, not just in Matthew 4, but through his whole life, the devil's after him. Think about this fact that, you know, it's unlikely that the devil has personally been after me at any point in my life, because we know the devil's not omnipresent, right? He sends his demons and no doubt demons have come after me, but I don't think I'm all that important for the devil to personally come after Mike Berry, but the devil personally came after Jesus. And when you investigate and study the temptations of the, what is the devil really trying to tempt Jesus to do? He's trying to tempt him to access his prerogatives of deity while he's a man. Go ahead and turn these stones into bread. You can do that. Go ahead and jump off the father will, and, and Jesus resists those temptations. Very unique, but still he resists them as a man. And because he never gave in at any point during his lifetime, we could say that his resistance was just in you know in, so superior to ours. You know, if if God were just to kind of throw things back and let the devil have at us with no help whatsoever, I don't know that any of us in this room would last two seconds. But Jesus lasted his entire lifetime under those types of temptations. Well, um, we'll pray right there. I'm going to be up here for questions. Um, I know this is a lot to to digest, uh, but I have put out some stuff on Facebook that will help you kind of go back. And also you can look at some of those other articles that we sent out this week to try to really try to chew on this a little more between now and next Sunday. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for just the incredible nature of your scriptures, such wisdom that you've given us to reveal yourself, not just in, in, in truisms or in pithy statements, but you've given us uh, specific cases and situations where we get to apply the humanity of Christ, of Christ and his deity to our lives. And we see it laid out in scripture and how it helps us and how it uh, supports us in seeing that Christ was tempted in all ways like us. And yet where we fall and he didn't, and we get wrapped up in his righteousness and that he can save to the uttermost because he is man and he is God. And he can bridge that gap between God and man. Um, we pray Lord that you would help us to grow in understanding who you are and to grow in our appreciation that we can put our foot on this ladder that has come down to us, the ladder of the humanity of Christ, and climb up to understand his deity by your grace. We pray that you'd help us to do so. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, all God's people said, Amen.